Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Vinganza Media Podcast about all things in print. Stuart in LA making my third appearance here on the Planet of the Apes. Although, funny thing, three book reviews, I've never visited the same universe twice. If you remember, my maiden voyage took me to Soros, the simian planet that French novelist Pierre Boulle conceived way back in 1963. That was the foundational world. Everything that we know, the movies, the cartoon, the comic books, all came from Soros. Last week, I spent two paperbacks on Ashlar, which was the planet Tim Burton reimagined for his 2001 Apes reboot. This week, I'm headed home. Welcome to post-apocalyptic Earth circa 3078. This is the ape planet that I think most people are familiar with. It's the one that the classic original five movies is set in. The place that made Chuck Heston demand all stinking paws be taken off his loincloth. The one that made him fall to his knees crying before a crumpled Statue of Liberty and scream, we blew it up. This is the world of conspiracy of the Planet of the Apes, which is the book I'm reviewing for you today. It's an illustrated novel written by Andrew Gaska, published just a few years ago, July 2011. It's going to retell the classic 68 film, but using a different set of characters, which is to say that these are men and apes who might have made brief appearances on screen, but they probably seemed incidental to the overall movie narrative. Now they're going to be the stars. Now they're going to tell their version of what happened. So the main character is not going to be George Taylor, that cynical Charlton Heston character. He makes appearances here. He has important cameos that kind of let us know where we are in the story. But our focal point is his compatriot, the optimistic astronaut, John Landon. You might remember him. He's the guy who barely had time to plant the flag onto the new world before he was captured by gorillas and lobotomized. There is so much more to his story here on the page than what we got on the screen. And that's true also of all the supporting characters. I mean, you need to have sympathetic chimpanzee scientists. It's a staple of this series. But let's not go back to Zira and Cornelius, right? They're overexposed. They're off dealing with Taylor. We need fresh blood. We need someone that didn't appear in three movies. So instead, let's look at disgruntled Dr. Galen. He had exactly one scene in the first movie in which he complained to Zira that his work didn't get the same attention as hers did, that he was passed up from a promotion. And guess what, dude? It's your lucky day. You get promoted. We're not going to focus on Zira. We're going to look at Dr. Galen. And Gaskett's going to do this not only with the first movie, he pulls characters from all the later sequels. For example, the chimp scientist Dr. Milo. He's a central character here. He made an appearance in the third movie, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, in the first 10 minutes. I mean, he was killed off really rapidly. He traveled back in time with Cornelius and Zira to 1970s Los Angeles. They were all put in a zoo. He was choked by a gorilla. That was the end of him. I remember asking, why did they even have this guy? He's a third wheel. You didn't need him. He didn't do anything. He wasn't important. 
he is important here on Conspiracy of the Planet of the Apes. So that's really what's going to happen in this book. They're going to enrich and unify the movie universe, and they're going to attempt to tell brand new character arcs within the familiar story. They're going to try and find unexplored territory to a property, presumably, we all love. And I'm happy to report that this is largely a very successful revision. This book is going to please fans of the original movie universe, although I want to preface this review right up front by saying that familiarity with the 1968 film is a necessity. If you hope to follow the plots of Conspiracy of the Planet of the Apes, you need to know at least the first movie. You need to have seen it at least once. And the better you know the sequels, Beneath, Escape, to a lesser extent Conquest and Battle for the Planet of the Apes, the more rewarding this read is going to be. Now, I have just seen all of those. They're fresh in my memory. Gold-level donors over at Sister Podcast Now Playing know that we've gone through step-by-step, and we've found a good deal of inconsistencies and plot hiccups. I'm happy to report that Gaska saw them too, and he's able to smooth them out here in a really nice way. It's a really nice package. Good illustrations, a scant 268 pages, and he's going to tackle a lot of perceived problems with the universe and unify it for us. For example, one of the first things that was brought up in the original podcast, Arnie, Jacob, and I, we all scratched our heads over the fact that we have this Discovery One spaceship, and it's traveled a thousand years in time and space to deliver four astronauts to a new world, and it doesn't appear to have any way to land. It's literally, it's crashing down on the surface, spinning. There doesn't seem to be any landing gear coming out. It just, was this the plan? Who designed this? I remember thinking this was crazy. Well, Gaska has a reason for why that happened. And more importantly, I think I like it. I think it's plausible. The ship had sustained damage from a mid-air collision. What did it collide with? The Discovery 1. That's right. It hit itself. The human crew of the Discovery 1 is traveling at the exact same speed and trajectory and pathway as the three chimpanzees are leaving the Planet of the Apes in the third movie. If you remember, that movie started with Zira Cornelius and Dr. Milo getting the hell out of there. They end up crashing into the ocean, 1970s Los Angeles. Taylor and his human crew end up crashing in the lake of the Forbidden Zone. The reason why that they're crashing is because they both traveled at the exact same time, at the exact same pathway. It was There's a theory for it. It's called the Hasline Curve. And the reason the ships didn't get out of the way from each other is that it's motion detectors. If it were an astronaut, it would know to veer right or veer left. But it perceived itself and thus wrote it off as uh, an error. There's no way the ship could be coming at itself, so it didn't see any danger and didn't veer out of the way. And consequently, we had this crash a few hundred years before the humans reach futuristic Earth. It not only causes their ship to go into the lake, but it also kills one of the crew members. I kind of forget, but there were four astronauts in the original movie. There was a token female, Marianne Stewart, and the reason why she doesn't make it and the men do is that her hibernation pod sustained damage, damage caused by that crash with the other discovery full of chimpanzees. And so while the men were sleeping in their hibernation chambers, for them time passed like it was 18 months, 
They grew really long beards, but otherwise they were the same people getting out of the pod that they were getting into the pod a thousand years ago. But for her, time passed at the same rate that the ship took to travel through time and space. So basically, she felt the centuries. They wake up and they find her a withered husk, a skeleton. It's just another blow to morale. I mean, here are these three guys. Their ship is ruined. They're not going to be able to get home. They're a thousand years past anyone that they ever knew living. The mission had been designed to offer a female in case of situations just like this, they would at least be able to repopulate. But now that opportunity is gone. This hits John Landon particularly hard, our main character for this story. We find out through flashbacks, John Landon had a previous working relationship with Marianne Stewart, and he had a previous romance with Marianne Stewart. All of this came to light in their last mission together. They were in a top-secret mission testing some of this interstellar flight that the Discovery One was using and benefiting from. They tested it out by taking a ship from Mars to Jupiter at an accelerated rate. And what apparently happened is one of the other crews that was in hibernation sleep got something which is called hibernation psychosis. He came out very paranoid. He was convinced that there was a communist plot on board the ship, although there was not. He pulled guns. He sabotaged equipment. He basically became a mutiny All the crew members of that mission are killed, with the exception of John Landon and Mary Ann Stewart. And as you can imagine, it was a very emotional moment for them. They ended up working off some of the tension by having sex with one another. And I don't know if she was so into him. They both had partners waiting for them back home on Earth, but he never really got over her. You know, I think that's part of why he signed up for this Discovery One mission is that he knew it could potentially be a one-way ticket and if he was going to be stuck on an island or a planet somewhere with anyone that he could, it would be Marianne Stewart. So he was prepared to deal with the idea that they could be stuck on a foreign planet and never getting back to their time. But I don't think that he was ready to do it alone. And I don't think he's emotionally prepared to hear cynical George Taylor yapping in his ears about how the groceries are running out and how they probably only have three more days until they all die. But if you remember the movie, the three men set out, they trek across what's later referred to as the Forbidden Zone. It's a desert area with strange lightning and cosmic forces. Not really explained what that is until the second film. Something we didn't see that's here in the book is that John Landon becomes a little bit psychotic. He starts to plot to kill Taylor. And that's not just his emotions talking. He is becoming a victim and a pawn of the mutants. Beneath the Planet of the Apes establishes that not only is this world populated by chimpanzees, orangutans, and gorillas that are smarter and more socially advanced than the human beings, there was also human beings that suffered radiation sickness, were deformed, mutated, hid underground in the rubble of New York City, and developed psychic abilities, telepathic, mind control, they take control here of Landon. They see what they can do with him. They think that he is really their way into Ape City and possibly overthrowing it. They are starting to get into a war with the apes. The apes don't know that the mutants exist, but the mutants have been stealing their crops, 
fearful of the ape advances. Cornelius and Zira have a scientific mission in the Forbidden Zone. They see that as an entrenchment. They're wanting to fight back. Landon is going to be their first weapon. And they're taking him for a trial run by seeing if they can get him to kill George Taylor. And he probably would have, except George insisted on keeping the one gun that they had. So the men end up making it to the Oasis just fine without any more fatalities. Anyone that knows the movie knows what happens next. There's a warring tribe of gorillas that sweep in here, grabbing all of the human savages that have been raiding their corn. All three astronauts are caught up in that. Dodge is killed. Landon and Taylor are separated. We know what happens to Taylor because that's the story of the movie. What happens to Landon is he becomes involved with those chimp scientists I mentioned earlier. Dr. Galen, the one that wants to be Zira, but doesn't have her authority. He's got a secret agenda, and it involves Landon. I think that's where the title comes from. Conspiracy, the conspiracies they're talking about is that everyone's got a plot involving this poor astronaut, that the mutants, their conspiracy is to send him here into Ape City and make him their spy, maybe negotiate peace, maybe cause civil unrest for the apes. I'm not quite sure what the plot is. Maybe even they don't know. At this point, they're just trying to test the boundaries of what they can make him do. Well, Galen... He has a dream about using the human populace, which are considered savages. They don't speak. They're not intellectually on the same level as any ape. He wants to see if he can nevertheless use their body parts for organ transplants and blood transfusions. This is forbidden. They have lots of scrolls that tell them what they can and can't do. And it's very clear that humans are not to be thought of in the same way as apes. He sees the potential that the physiology is similar enough that he could use them for transplants that hasn't been accomplished in this society yet. They're technologically, they're not as advanced as the human society that the astronauts had left. They haven't made it to the skies yet. They don't have these medical advances. He wants to push that forward. He knows that if Dr. Zayas finds out his research, he'll stop it. But if he can prove it, if he can use test subjects like Landon, then it will change things. Zayas won't be able to fight the results. Meanwhile, the third conspiracy is Dr. Milo. He's an engineer. He's a friend of Zira. His secret passion is that he believes that apes could learn how to fly. And at night, when no one's looking, he goes out in weird contraptions and jumps off bridges and usually flaps around for a little bit in hang gliders or small, crazy aerial devices. But ultimately, they crash. He hasn't quite captured it yet, but he's an aspiring Wright brother, as it were. And when he finds out that Landon is a man from another planet and that he can talk, well, he's able to gain the confidence of Landon in a way that no other ape is able to. And they start a dialogue in which the man tells him where his ship is. And so this really gives Milo the impetus to go out there into the Forbidden Zone, unsupervised, unapproved by Zaius, and to dredge up the Discovery One and to get it prepared for takeoff. That's how they're able to leave the planet in the third movie. A big question mark if you just saw the escape from the Planet of the Apes and wondered, how did they find the ship? How did they get off? The groundwork is laid here. This story tells you about that. There's a fourth conspiracy, too. It's kind of a tawdry one, but Galen has a wife, chimpanzee, who is having a 
physical affair with a gorilla garbage man. And that may not sound very important because it doesn't involve Landon, but it actually does play into a big part of the climax because their affair eventually gets her going to the lab. Landon is able to take her hostage. He's going to try to use her to negotiate his escape and maybe the release of Taylor as well. He's fighting for his own survival. He knows that Zayas wants to have him lobotomized. Now, I mentioned this is an expansion of the original film's world, but it isn't a rewrite. They aren't going to change anything and create continuity problems. Landon eventually is going to get lobotomized. I think it's what gives this piece sort of a a tragic quality. But that tragedy bleeds over. It's not just sad that a man loses his mental functions because the apes don't want to believe that a human being can be as smart as they are. That is sad, but that was also Taylor's story. What's really sad is that we realize by reading this novel, by taking away the cognition of Landon, the apes have essentially cut themselves off from being able to negotiate peace with the mutants. And so they're very quickly going to get involved into a war. General Ursus, he's here on the page. He's there in the second movie. He's going to drag them into an unwinnable situation in which ape troops march off into the Forbidden Zone and are crucified and killed. And it's all going to lead to annihilation of everyone. If Landon hadn't died... That could have been changed. So it's a real tragedy. It's a tragedy for everyone, but they don't know it. But we do because we've seen the movies. We've read the story. We have this perspective now to appreciate the full bloom of what's gone wrong. And there's a lot more of that here. I'm telling you the main framework just to get you excited. I really do want to encourage any fan of the series to pick this up. I'm going to go ahead and say it. This is my favorite Planet of the Apes book that I've read. It really does favorably compare with any film in the franchise. And it's just a great collectible. I mean, there are over a dozen artists that provide portraits and really bring this story to life. The prose is pretty good, but it's the pictures that really make it vivid and make it feel cinematic. It really ties in with that movie universe. You see it as a movie. And speaking of seeing movies, this week... Dawn of the Planet of the Apes opens in theaters. It looks like it's going to be great. It looks like it's going to be a blockbuster. I was very excited to see it. I, of course, will be reviewing it for Gold Level donors over at Now Playing. You can go to the website, nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner to find out how you can hear those shows. But I just found out, thanks to a fan that listens on Twitter, they told me that there's a prequel novel to this book. How could I not read that? I thought I was done reading Planet of the Apes. There's going to be one more. It's called Dawn of the Planet of the Apes Firestorm. And I'm going to run out quickly, cram that one in, and next week we're going to release our now-playing review of the film Dawn of the Planet of the Apes And I will also release here on Books and Nachos one more review that everyone can hear about the events that apparently cover what happened at the end of Rise of the Planet of the Apes through a decade to the beginning of the new movie. So sounds like a lot of important developments happen that we're only going to find out in this book. I'm going to read that book and give you a full report next week. So one more book, guys, before I turn it back over to Arnie and Stephen King, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes Firestorm. I hope you're enjoying the series. I hope you're able to donate and hear the movie reviews. Keep reading. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.